Hi to everyone at home or online. Hope you're, uh, you might not be at home, isn't it? You might be on the bus or something. So <laughs> if you're watching, wherever you are, hello. Hope you're enjoying. Now then, on um, my, um, recently on my phone, I keep getting, um, you know, they like suggested for you things coming up. Clips of undercover boss <laughs> keep coming up on my, on my phone. I don't know why. I used it as an illustration in a talk maybe like four years ago. And I don't know if in the algorithm somewhere. It thinks of. Anyway, I did used to watch it a little bit. I don't know if anyone had seen this show before. I remember when I was, you know, years ago on TV, used to, you know, it was one of those ones on a Saturday morning or something, isn't it? So basically, uh, you know, a boss disguise, <laughs> he disguises himself or herself, goes to their company, you know, acts as if they're a new employee or something, and obviously the cameras are there, and, um, you know, they film it to see, like, the reactions and, uh, of the staff and stuff. So sometimes you've had these, like, staff who they're meant to be training this person. They don't realize it's their boss, and they're really, like, rude and superior and speak down to customers. And then later on, they have the, like, the reveal where they meet with the boss, and they're, like, really shocked. And, um, you know, then they have to go for, like, extra training or something. But then also, you get these really great stories where you get, you know, just kind of ordinary, like, members of staff who are, you know, really faithful, hardworking, inventive, sometimes maybe going through challenges in their own life, sometimes not. But, like, people who would never, like, if you, like, normally get, you know, an opportunity to be kind of recognized by the CEO or something. But this brings them together, and the CEO sees how hard they've been working or things that they've created and that hadn't been recognized. And then they get these amazing, you know, opportunities of promotion or fast-tracked or, you know, something like this. And that's, you know, it's really great to see. There is actually, there was one episode where um, the guy fired his own boss because <laughs> he was training to be like a forklift truck driver or something. And the boss just like wasn't very good. And because it's like a safety thing, he had to let him go at the end of the day. And he fired his own boss, which I thought was quite funny. So anyway, today, as we carry on with our, um, my um, story, the eyewitness series that we've been looking at, there's this dynamic today where like the tables are turned in an unexpected way. And so in this series, we've been exploring the accounts of people who had encounters with Jesus and are named uh, in the Gospels, because many people encountered Jesus in different ways. Maybe they were, you know, just heard him teach, or maybe they were healed, or there was a miracle. And, you know, actually most of the people who encountered Jesus in this way, they, they aren't actually named, but some people are. And so we've been asking the question, you know, why are these people in particular named? And historians and theo theologians have suggested that the people who are named, their names are recorded because they went on to be followers of Jesus. They were known in the early church, and this was their story, and they went around telling their story about what had happened to them, and that's how it ended up being recorded and written down by the gospel authors. And so today, we're looking at the story of Simon the Pharisee. Uh, and he is someone who invites Jesus over his house for a meal, and it's recorded in Luke's gospel. And Luke records three occasions when a Pharisee invited Jesus over their house for a meal, uh, but Simon is the only one of those Pharisees who is actually named, and it gives a little clue to his story, which we'll see later. So a little bit of background. So Simon is a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were one of the leading groups at the time, religiously and politically, and those two things were kind of merged at the time. Uh, they were respected, well-educated, they were kind of the elites, and they were known for having a real concern for upkeeping the law and doing things right and doing things by the book. Um, but sometimes this could be taken to the extreme, 
and they would in, kind of invent traditions to try and make sure everyone was, you know, living right. And then they'd invent layers of traditions to make sure that no one was, me you know, messing up. It's a bit like, you know, when you go, you know, down and it's like, um, you know, maybe a, like a reservoir or something, and it's like, you know, no swimming in the reservoir. But then now with like health and safety, it won't just be a sign anymore. There'll be like a, a barrier, you know, to stop you going in. And then maybe like there's a barrier on the footpath. And as you keep going, the barriers increase, you know. So this was kind of, you know, there's the line here, and then they put a line here, and then a line here. And um, they had a reputation for being superior in their approach and lacking grace. And this often brought them into conflict with Jesus because Jesus wanted to help break down barriers to help people meet God with their relationship with him. And, and uh, whereas the Pharisees, their approach was often putting barriers in people's way. So anyway, this brought them into conflict with Jesus from time to time, which we'll kind of see today. And at this moment in Jesus's um, kind of life, he was still fairly new on the scene. He performed some amazing miracles. His reputation was growing, but he was still quite new. So we just read this just before this little encounter with Simon. It says, Jesus did this amazing miracle. And it says, all the people were filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. And this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. And so next, not long after this, this is what we read. It says this in Luke 7. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. And so Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. And in those days, um, when wealthy people like Pharisees would like, host a meal, it wasn't kind of like in their front room, like behind closed doors, but often they would host it in like a courtyard kind of area. And um, people in the town or whatever, they would come and gather around the outside of the courtyard and they would watch and they would listen in to the discussions that were being had and maybe the debates that were being had. And this was like the entertainment of the day. They didn't have Netflix, but it was like, you know, who's going over Simon's house for dinner tonight? Let's go and have a watch. Let's have a, a listen in. And so people would have gathered around and would be watching on the outside. Also at the time, there was like an honor-shame culture. So who you were associated with was like kind of really important. You wanted to be associated with the right people, and this would like improve your standing. So for Simon to invite Jesus into his home, and Jesus got a growing reputation. Maybe, you know, this would make himself look good, like, oh, Simon's got Jesus coming over. Does that make sense? Or on the other hand, maybe Simon would think that there's this upcomer, Jesus, and maybe I'm doing him a favor. You know, I'm well-known Pharisee, and, you know, maybe Simon thinks he's doing Jesus a favor, letting Jesus associate with him. So either way round, you can see why what happens next causes a bit of a stir. So it says this, when a certain immoral woman from that city heard Jesus was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him, Jesus, at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. So picture the scene. You've got this courtyard this meal, important occasion, a room of elites, you know, all the, the some of his followers, and in bursts this woman, you know, the crowds are meant to kind of look from the outside, maybe, maybe they chip in a question, but this woman bursts into the scene and um, starts pouring perfume on Jesus' feet, which seems random to us, but it makes sense to them, it was a way of, you know, showing someone honor. 
But it's like, as she does, she's overcome with emotion. She starts weeping. She starts crying. Maybe it's a bit snotty. Maybe it's a bit messy. Who knows? We don't know what that's like. She starts crying. And then I don't know whether she intended to do this or whether it was a moment of panic. She starts wiping off the tears with her hair. Have you ever, like, spilt something or knocked something over? And then in your panic to try and clean it up, you knock something else and you break something. Has anyone done this before? So, you know, it's all kind of commotion going on here. Now, at the time, to let your hair down in public for a woman, like culturally at that time, was kind of, you know, would have been seen as inappropriate. So it's a bit like the other day. I saw, so not only I saw this, but there was a girl at a friend's wedding. And before the bride and groom cut the cake, she went over and, oh, hold on, next one, sorry. She went over and helped herself to a slice and just cut it. And if you go online, there's a little video of it. It's so funny. And just she's dancing, she just goes over, and she's like, like licking her finger. And, <laughs> so culturally, obviously, that's just something you wouldn't do. So apparently she didn't, she just didn't know. You know, she just maybe she's not been to like a, it was an American uh, wedding, I think. Maybe she's not been to the, you know, that kind of wedding before. But you can imagine the shock, isn't it? Imagine, watch her. I can't believe she just did that. Um, but her, the bride was very kind. She came out, you know, and said, you know, it was all on social media, whatever. She posted that she didn't mind this was her friend. You know, she didn't know. It's not a big deal, whatever, whatever. So that's nice. But, but Simon, in his house, he isn't so gracious in his response to what's going on. He says this. He says this. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, talking about Jesus, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She is a sinner. And so Simon's thoughts, they reveal his heart. Like firstly, we see why he invited Jesus. You know, if this man is a prophet, he's kind of testing out, well, who is this Jesus? Which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But then secondly, we see how he judges and labels this woman. She is a sinner, as if that's all that she is. You know, as if that's all that she amounts to. In Simon's eyes, it's like, that's her label. That's who, you know, it's a, that's who he's written her off as, and that's it for him. In his eyes, she deserves a particular kind of treatment, someone not to be associated with. If Jesus knew what type of woman, you know, this is, then, you know, she is a sinner. So you can see the attitude of his heart. But then next, Jesus says this. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. That's when he's at, he says, you know, if this man were a prophet, thinks it in his head, and then Jesus answers his thoughts. So there's a clue for us, isn't there? Anyway, Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said, and this is the first time Simon is named, and it's when Jesus calls to him. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him a story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces of silver to the other. But neither of them could repay, so he kindly forgave them both, cancelling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? And Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And see, Simon's like reluctant to answer. He's not quite sure. Where's this story going? I suppose the one whom cancelled the larger debt. Jesus said, that's right. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the first time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. 
You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So here we see how Jesus turns the tables on the cultural expectations and the dynamic of, of what's going on. And if there was ever like a mic drop moment in Jesus' life, if that was a thing then, I think this would be it. When Jesus says, you neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I can imagine the people on the outside going, ooh. <laughs> like, <laughs> because here, Jesus, he exposes Simon's heart. And that really, Simon's been quite rude. Like when you would invite a guest into your home, just as standard, you would provide water for them to wash their feet, you know, so you know, dusty and dirty, and so they could wash their feet. You would greet them. You know, greet them with a kiss, that was normal then. And then if you wanted to honor someone, you might go the little, you know, a little bit extra and might anoint them with oil. That was part of the culture then. But Simon doesn't do any of these things, not even the basics. So it suggests that perhaps he didn't think Jesus was worthy, like a really a worthy guest. He takes a superior attitude and shows poor hospitality. And really, by doing this, he's like putting Jesus down publicly. It's kind of showing, you know, this is your place. And this is my place. And that could be, in other situations, that could be quite humiliating. It's kind of almost humiliating someone publicly, isn't it? You know, I was trying to think of his art, but you know, if you, I don't know, if you got invited to a meeting or something, then you're deliberately left waiting outside or, you know, something sometimes, you know, that kind of thing. But it's very public and it's almost humiliating. Jesus, you know, he takes it in his stride. You know, he's got nothing to prove. Um, so, he, you know, he handles it well, obviously. Now, interestingly, not long before this, Jesus had been teaching his followers, and he says this to them, do not judge others, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others, or it will come back against you. Forgive others, and you will be forgiven. And in Simon's actions, we see how this is played out, because it's actually the actions of the forgiven woman who Simon is judging and condemning that actually exposes his lack of hospitality publicly. And this would have been socially embarrassing for Simon, how this plays out when Jesus and the woman here exposes you know, the contrast, because she shows incredible generosity in her hospitality. She recognizes Jesus' worth, and she honors him, and Jesus publicly upholds her and restores her in front of all of the crowd. So let's have a little look at each character and something that we can kind of learn from them today. So first of all, Jesus in this encounter, we see how Jesus' forgiveness is far-reaching and totally effective. And I love the parable that he uses to illustrate forgiveness when he says, you know, one man owed 50 pieces of silver and another, sorry, 500 pieces of silver and another 50 pieces of silver. So in one sense, different amounts, 550, a huge difference. But on the other hand, it says, but neither could repay. So effectively, they're both in the same boat. You know, on one hand, it seems like different, but effectively, they're both in the same boat. And so we see here, there's no room for Simon's attitude of superiority. 
where he's comparing, you know, one person to another. Oh, this one's a sinner because of what they've done, whereas, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all right. There's no room for that because no one's perfect, and we all make mistakes, and we're all in the same boat. In Romans, it says this, everyone has sinned, and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet in God's grace, freely, he makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. So here's the crucial bit in the parable where Jesus says, neither of them could repay, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. And I love this illustration because like when a debt is canceled, it's gone. You know, it's done, it's paid. There's nothing left to pay. There's nothing lingering. There's no, you know, it's gone. So recently in the news, there's these two rugby clubs who've like amassed some debts to um, the tax man, the Inland Revenue, or the tax woman, um, the HMRC. And so, you know, they're in the news, you know, they're in conversation about how are they going to repay these, and they're huge debts, you know, and they're, they're looking at maybe making a plan. Can this club be saved? Can they pay it over time? And it's, you know, it's going to linger on for many years. But with Jesus, he's like, cancelled, gone. No plan, no repay, not lingering at all. Totally gone, completely. And that's what Jesus does for us, for our sins, for the things that we have done wrong, when we've hurt others or hurt ourselves. When God came into the world himself as a man, Jesus, and he died on the cross for all the wrong things that we've ever done or ever will do, Jesus paid the price once and for all. He broke through the barrier of sin that separates us from God so we could have a relationship with God, so that we could be restored, so we could be made whole. And he did it once and for all, canceling the debt. So when we receive Jesus into our lives, it's gone. We are forgiven. We can know God in our lives today. We can have a fresh start, the promise of eternal life, and God with us through his Holy Spirit, now and into eternity, once and for all. So I love this verse in 1 Corinthians that sums up, says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life has gone, a new life has begun. And all this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ Jesus. And so for us today, if ever we've, you know, asked God to forgive us, but we're still feeling guilty about something, or we aren't sure if we've been forgiven, or it's making us feel reluctant to pray, or to ask God for something, or, you know, it's kind of, we, we feel almost, yeah, like reluctant to approach God in any way, well then let me encourage you to be free of that because it's gone, you are forgiven, the debt is paid, it is canceled, you are a new creation, and it's completely gone. So Ephesians, it says this, because of Christ and our faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. So whenever we get those kind of feelings, feelings of guilt, when we, you know, we make them say, okay, God, forgive me, let's not let, allow that, those feelings to linger, we are forgiven, and we can enter God's presence. And he has relationship with us because he loves us and it's amazing. And so this is what the forgiven woman does. She approaches Jesus with boldness and confidence, you know, and she doesn't care what else is going on in the, in the room and who else is there because she knows she can approach him and that he welcomes her. And on this occasion, she goes to give thanks and to give worship. Now, it's interesting, I think, in this story, that in some ways she's a bit like the hero of the story but she isn't named in this story. And I was thinking, oh, I, w I wonder why, I wonder why she's not named. It's possible that, you know, because this happened in like a rural town, 
that maybe she continued to live in that town and, you know, in, um, where the early church was kind of the hub of it was in Jerusalem and that's where the gospel authors would have written it down. You know, maybe they didn't get her account firsthand from her, so her name's not recorded. Or possibly, um, I tell you, one reason it's definitely not is because she's, it's definitely not because she's not an important character. So we see how Jesus, you know, highly valued women, and Luke, the author here, does as well. And in the very next account in Luke's gospel uh, is where Luke lists all the women disciples who are followers of Jesus and who supported him out of their own money. And Sarah spoke on this a few weeks ago, if you're interested and want to look it up. And this was, you know, highly unusual at the time for a rabbi to have women disciples, but Jesus did, and Luke highlights it. So it says here, Soon afterwards, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom. He took his 12 disciples with him, along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he'd cast out seven demons, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and many others who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples, the 12 disciples. But these traveled with him as his followers as well, which is amazing. Now, some people might think that because um, this little list comes straight after this story, then perhaps one of the women in this list, named in this list, is the woman in the, um, in the story. But that's just like speculation. You know, we, we don't know if that's the case. But perhaps, this is what I was thinking, perhaps this lady isn't named because whatever happened in her past that caused her in the town to be labeled as an immoral woman, well, now Jesus has publicly forgiven and restored her. And now she has a new identity. She's a new creation, a new person, following Jesus with a new future. And so Luke doesn't attach her name to that label that the town and the people there and Simon had attached to her. But she has a new identity that Jesus has given her. And then the other thing to remember is that this is Simon's story. And this is, you know, this is his account. And Simon's story is left open-ended. So when you look at the forgiven woman, we see that her part of the story comes to a nice, neat conclusion. Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you, go in peace. It's like Luke's equivalent of, and she lived happily ever after. You know, it's like a nice ending to her story. It's nicely rounded up. Whereas Simon, well, what happened to him next? We're left wondering. All we see is that, you know, the men around the table, this doesn't even say Simon, but the men around the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? But I wonder, you know, what conclusion did Simon come to? And what on earth did Simon say next after he'd lifted his jaw off the floor? What did he say to Jesus next? I don't know. How does he respond? And where does he end up next? This story is left open-ended. We don't know. And this is meant to draw us into the story. And this is meant to for us as the reader, for us to identify with Simon and for us to put ourselves in his shoes and to think about Simon's reaction and how would I react if I was in Simon's shoes? It prompts us to examine our own hearts and our own attitudes when we see this encounter. Like David prays in the Psalms, he says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me along the path of everlasting life. And whenever we encounter Jesus in the Bible 
and how he responds to people, it challenges us to see the world through his perspective and to look at our own hearts and attitudes and things that we pick up or in our day-to-day lives and think, Jesus, how do you see the world and how do I see the world? How do you treat people and value people and how am I treating people and valuing people? And just to take a moment to reflect on our our own heart and our own thinking and our own attitude and be, Lord, search my heart and lead me in the way to everlasting life. Help me to love people like you do and treat people like you do and think of people like you do and respond like you do. And through the Holy Spirit, you know, he empowers us to live like Jesus did, which is amazing. So this is, you know, one of those good passages to kind of reflect on. And then secondly, the fact that Simon is named in the story, unlike Jesus' other meals with Pharisees, gives us a little bit of a clue. And that's why this story is maybe left open-ended, that it gives us a clue that Simon himself may have well gone on to be a follower of Jesus himself. And that's why he's named. And in Acts, which was also written by Luke, about the life of the early church, we find several Pharisees among Jesus' followers who went on to be followers of Jesus. So in Acts 15, it says, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, they're having a kind of a big meeting together um, there. So Luke records how, you know, you've got Simon the Pharisee, his story's left open-ended. And then later on in the early church, we see all these Pharisees, um, you know, following Jesus. And maybe we went to make the link that like this is the answer to Simon's story, which is interesting, isn't it? Now, if this is true, and this is Simon's story, I think that's pretty amazing that he would share this story so honestly. And it shows a real transformation in his life, doesn't it? From someone who wanted to display their superiority and how, you know, I'm more important than you, and, you know, this person's like this, and Jesus I'm going to mistreat because, you know, I'm here and Jesus is there, to now sharing his most embarrassing moment. You know, with the world forever. And now we're looking at it 2,000 odd years later. And we're sharing and enjoying reading about Simon's most embarrassing moment together. But I think this is one of the most amazing things about the accounts of Jesus' life. And we see this throughout the whole Bible as well. Is that it doesn't hide, you know, the mistakes and the slip-ups of his characters. Even of his heroes. You know, it's very open and honest and candid. And that's really unusual when you look throughout history and how people have told their histories throughout the years, even right up till today, when people tell their version of events, usually people will try and paint themselves in the most positive light. And there's that saying, isn't it, that the victors write history, you know, whoever won the battle or whatever, they write their version of events and make themselves look amazing, etc., etc. But when we see how Jesus followers, the accounts that they gave, how they, you know, they didn't They didn't spare the details on their slip-ups and mistakes and misunderstandings when they were slow to believe and all this kind of stuff. And I think that's a real marker, and it is a real marker, of the authenticity of the accounts of Jesus' life. Because if you were making it up, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't, you would only include your highlights, and you would take all those bits out, but they're in there, and they've shared it with us for our learning as well. Just like Sean shared last week about Thomas and, uh, you know, his encounter with Jesus after the resurrection and how he, you know, he had doubted it at first, and then, you know, he went on to believe. And that story's in there as well, and that's, you know, that's important for us. So, this is, encourages us, too, that we can be real and authentic in our walks with Jesus and in our life together. And that we don't need to put on a pretense or a pretend that, you know, everything's okay if it's not. And, you know, that we're not struggling if we are. Because, you know, this is a community that loves one another and supports one another, and we know that we, that we need the, the help and the power of Jesus in our lives to help us in our walk 
And so it's okay to be honest with one another when we're you know, in a challenging time or different things because God loves us for who we are. And as we see Jesus here, he welcomes the woman for who she is and he brings a transformation in her life. But not only her life, in Simon's life as well, which is amazing. And so Jesus' invitation to life with him and the power of forgiveness reaches to all. It's far-reaching, it's effective, and it transforms our lives. From the woman in the story to Simon in the story, they both have a transformative encounter with Jesus. And we learn from their stories today, which is amazing. So why don't we pray? Let's invite the Holy Spirit to fill us again with his power and to help us to follow Jesus in our lives. Father, I thank you for your great love for us, so much so that you would send Jesus into the world, that he would give his life for us on the cross, that he's alive today, and that you welcome us into friendship and relationship with you. And I pray for each and every one of us, would you come and fill us now with your Holy Spirit. And when we reflect on our own lives, I pray, would you lead us into freedom? Would you help us to live like you, Jesus? And if there's anyone here that's kind of holding on to or feels weighed down by guilt from something in the past that you've long forgiven, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you come now and bring a release of freedom that we would know that we can approach you with boldness, with our heads held high because of what you have done for us. And if there's anyone here today or watching online and you've been thinking about Jesus, heard about Jesus, you've been watching for a while, but you've never said yes to Jesus yourself and to receive his friendship in your life, his forgiveness for your life, and made that choice to follow him, then I just want to invite you to do this now because that invitation is for you and you can just say yes in a simple prayer. So you could pray this with me and say, Jesus, thank you that you gave your life for me. Thank you that you welcome me as a friend. Forgive me for the things I've done wrong. I accept that gift. And I welcome you into my life now. I thank you for the gift of eternal life, which you've won for me. And would you help me to follow you and to know you for the rest of my life? Amen.